All righty, go ahead, open up your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is your third book in the New Testament. I am so excited to dig in right now. Uh, we are beginning a brand new series going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. So if you're joining us for the first time, you're here for a great week as we kick off this new sermon series. Uh, as you know, we like to preach through entire books of the Bible. Uh, and in fact, one of the things we're doing in this church is you might see some of the folks around you have a little uh, a, a copy of just the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and if you don't have one of those, I see Kyung in the back, and he'd love to pass that out to you. This is a gift from us to you. Raise your hand if you would like one. And we invite you to bring that with you each week to your, the sermon, as well as to your small group throughout the week, so you can take your own notes and kind of have your own little copy of the Gospel of Luke to be reading along with. My aim today is twofold as we kick off this new sermon series. Number one, I want to walk through very high level, what is the Gospel of Luke? What should we expect? What, what, what should be the direction that we're aiming as we kind of think about this book in the New Testament called Luke? And then secondly, I want to really dig into our first passage. Now, you're going to notice we are actually skipping the majority of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the reason for that is because all of that is around the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. And we are going to hold off just about three months until Advent to cover Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 when we talk about the birth of Christ. So we're going to come back to it. We're not skipping it fully, okay? We're going to come back. But today we'll be at the very beginning of Luke chapter 1, and then we'll really dig into the end of chapter 2, which deals with Jesus at the age of 12 years old. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, reads this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pause there. Now that's Luke's introduction. Most letters in that day would have a pretty formal introduction. If you were writing a book or writing a letter, you'd write who you are, what your purpose is, who you're writing to. That was a standard way of writing uh, in those days of composing a, a piece of literature. Now, who's Luke? Who is this author, Luke? Well, Luke is, was not a direct disciple of Jesus that we know of. He may have been, but we don't have any sense of that from the writings of the New Testament. Unlike Matthew and John, for example, in the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all biographies of the life of Jesus. And they tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from these different perspectives. So Matthew, for example, was very Jewish. And he's constantly quoting Old Testament scriptures and proving to the Jews of his day that Jesus is their Messiah. That's the Gospel of Matthew. John has a whole different angle that he comes at this thing. He's very different. And Luke has his own posture and perspective that he's telling this story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Luke was known uh, in the New Testament as the beloved physician. Isn't that interesting language? Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. The apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, he, at the very end of Colossians, he's wrapping up this letter and he's giving thanks to all these different people. And then he says, Luke... The beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Luke was well familiar, he was very familiar with the Apostle Paul. In fact, Luke ended up writing another book called the, the, the Book of Acts, which is in our Bible. And in the, in the Book of Acts, he's telling the story of how the church emerged 
from the third person, and then they did this, and then they did this, and then about two-thirds of the way through the book, he switches to the first person. And then we went to Troas, and then we went to Macedonia. And he's actually telling it from a first-person perspective because he was one of the missionaries that went with the Apostle Paul and some of those early apostles as they were establishing the church. Later on, in the very last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, so First and Second Timothy are Paul's very last letters that he wrote. Second Timothy, at this point, he's just before death, as far as we can tell. It's his last kind of love letter, if you will, to this young disciple of his, Timothy, that he's just mentoring in the faith. And towards the very end of that book, he writes this. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, now if you remember from the Colossians verse we just read, Luke and Demas, Paul was very thankful for. Now the very end of his life, he says this. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. Paul's in prison writing this. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. So who is this guy? Luke is the beloved physician. He was a trained doctor of his day, very smart man. Sometimes you'll hear folks, if ever you do kind of apologetics work, conversations with people defending the faith, you'll hear people all the time say, oh, the Bible was written by a bunch of kind of backwoods fishermen who didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about their day. They could barely write. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. The Gospel of Luke was written by a highly trained physician and what became a historian of his day. But he was a beloved physician. He was beloved of the apostles. He stayed true to the apostle Paul when everyone else deserted him. That's the kind of faith that this man had. Luke is part one of a two-part book. Now, we actually studied the entire book of Acts a few years ago. So if you've been with us for some time, you might remember we went verse by verse all the way through the book of Acts. Luke and Acts, so Luke is two books forward. So if you're in Luke and you were to skip forward just two books in your Bible, you would find the book of Acts. The gospel of Luke is part one. It's telling the story of Jesus. And then the book of Acts picks up right where Luke ends, the Gospel of Luke, and it then tells the story of the explosion of the church in the first century as a result of the Holy Spirit. So Luke, the, the, gospel of, or the book of Acts begins with the Holy Spirit coming down on mankind and the, the church exploding. The Gospel of Luke begins with Jesus coming onto the scene and his story of how the kingdom began to come into to the earth. Who is he writing to? He's writing to this man named Theophilus. Now, who's Theophilus? We don't know exactly who he was. His name means lover of God. Theos, and then the term philio, right? Philio means to love, love. It's a certain kind of love, a brotherly love. So Theophilus means lover of God. As best as we can tell, Theophilus was a wealthy man who had hired Luke to compose a story, can put all the facts together of who Jesus was. If you can imagine the scene, the, the story of Christ was expanding like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean, both through some of the letters, like for example, Mark was probably already written at that point, but also through the oral testimonies of the people who were going out telling all about who Jesus was and what he had done. And not only were there true stories that were taking place, but there were probably a handful of false stories as well. It's ever you played the game of telephone, right? Sometimes stories begin to get, you know, a little crooked by the time they get to the third or the fourth person. And so Theophilus hires Luke. He says, look, will you set the record straight for me? Will you, do I witness 
interviews with the people who were there? Will you go to all the places and visit them with your own eyes and see them, talk to them, and compose an actual historical narrative of who this Jesus was so we can be certain about it? Now, I actually think this is very important for us in our 21st century. In first century, there was some uncertainty. What's the truth about Jesus? But what are these, which stories are true? Which ones aren't true? What do we believe? Who was he? What, what was his purpose? Now, in our day, Lord willing, in the church, we're not questioning some of those things, but frankly, probably a lot of folks are. Because in our day, there's all types of stories and false stories and, and different interpretations and allegories of who Jesus was. Many people who actually aren't Christians will end up citing Jesus and saying they love Jesus as long as it's just a little portion of him over here that we're talking about. And so for us in our 21st century, getting the record straight, who was he? Let's cut through the lies. Let's cut through all the interpretations of it. Let's get down to the historical, true Jesus as he's presented to us by the man who eyewitnessed people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, the apostles, the disciples, and find out who he was, where he was, and what he was doing. Now, that's a little bit of a high-level introduction to the Gospel of Luke. I hope that gets you excited for this. Let's dig into our first account of Jesus today. Like I said, we're skipping the birth narrative. So if you will, turn a few pages and pick up with me in Luke chapter 2, all the way at verse 40. Verse 40. And we'll read the end of chapter 2 together. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. All the mothers in the room can kind of get a sense for what she must have been feeling. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Now, let's kind of get this story straight. Some context is going to help us understand how this happened. It was the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover is a massive celebration in Israel where Jews from all over the land were required to make the trip all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the way that would happen is that you travel in these big caravans because, you know, police districts weren't quite as organized as they are in, the, in our day and age. It was quite dangerous to travel down these roads in, you know, if you were going by yourself or with one or two people. And so what would happen during these huge celebrations in Jerusalem a couple times a year is that all these families and neighbors and friends would make these big caravans, hundreds if not thousands of people traveling in groups together from the outskirts of Israel, walking to Jerusalem. In fact, a number of the psalms that we have in the book of Psalms are actually songs that would be sung by those caravans together. 
Can you just imagine the, God, the godliness of these groups traveling, singing Psalm 29 together as they're just marching and the little kids in tow learning this song and remembering the stories of what God had done? What a godly, wonderful scene that must have been. Well, they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and as they were traveling back, the way these caravans typically worked is that the women and the very young children would be in the front of the pack. And typically the men and the older children would be in the back. So the, the, the young boys who were kind of looking up to be men soon themselves, they'd be traveling with the guys in the back. Well, as the festival ended, you could imagine Joseph, you know, Jesus is 12 years old. 13 is the, the age where a boy becomes a man in historic Judaism. That's bar mitzvah age. And so Jesus is right on that cusp. You can imagine Joseph probably thought Jesus was up with mom in the front of the pack. And Mary, not seeing Jesus around, probably thought Jesus was in the back. A lot of people read this story and they think, how could they have not have realized Jesus was with them? Well, it's a pack of maybe thousands of people. You know, it's a huge parade going out of Jerusalem together. But after a day, Mary doesn't see Jesus. She probably goes to the back of the pack, finds Joseph. You got Jesus? You know, I do this with my, with my wife all the time. We got three little kids and I'll be at one, two. Sarah, you got three over there? No, where are they? You can see how that would happen. Suddenly, they both look at each other. And now they're scouring through thousands of people in the parade. You can just begin this mother's heart, this, you begin to see this mother's heart just beating frantically. Where's Jesus? Finally, after a day, they decide, we gotta get back. There's a whole other day's trip there. That's a dangerous trip, by the way, because now they're going by themselves on a very dangerous road. Thieves would be there. But they make it back to Jerusalem. They start looking around everywhere for him. And they find Jesus sitting at the feet of the rabbis and other religious leaders of the day. Now, this was a common scene. In fact, something like this happens in circles I run in very regularly. If there's a large conference, a Christian conference, everyone will come for the conference, and then everyone will leave, but the leaders and the teachers kind of stick around afterwards, and we all kind of connect with each other. And we catch up on what's going on, and we kind of network a little bit, and we find out you know, who's doing what research over here and here, and we just share the newest information with each other. That's what would have happened. So, so after the Passover, everyone leaves, but the rabbis and the religious leaders and the, the priests would have stuck around, and a very typical scene would have been in the temple, they're all having theological discussion after everyone leaves, and the youth, the 12, 13, 14-year-old boys, especially the promising ones, are sitting at their feet for the next few days. That was a normal situation, that's how it occurred in Jerusalem. They would have been gathered there. They would have been listening and soaking it all up, longing for the day when they might be one of those guys who's getting to network and, and, and lead things that way. The mother runs into the room, finds Jesus sitting there, and she's frantic. And Jesus looks at her and says, didn't, didn't you know this is where I would be? I was made for this, Mom. Almost knowingly. Now, now keep this in mind. One of the questions that come up, comes up was, was, was Jesus immoral in this moment, Right? The fifth commandment says that we are to honor our mother and father. We are to be submissive to authorities. Was Jesus morally corrupt in this point? The answer to that is overwhelmingly no. We, don't know, we, we know that Jesus had no sin. Scripture is clear. So whatever, however this situation happened, it wasn't a sinful decision of Jesus to stay behind. Any number of things could have happened. We don't know the details. Maybe they were packing up all their stuff and Jesus said, hey, by the way, I'm gonna go run over to the rabbis over here. And Joseph and Mary were like, okay, Jesus. And they just, we don't know what happened. Any number of things could have happened. But he was not sinful in staying behind. In fact, the text says it directly at the end that he chose to be submissive. He was submissive to his parents. Now, 
Two things come out of this, two elements from this story that will shape us and shape our faith. The first is this. The first is all around Jesus' nature. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And healthy Christians know the importance of both of those. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Here at just 12 years old, Jesus is astounding the religious leaders of his day. It's an interesting scene. 12-year-old boys, the, the youth that were around, are the ones that are typically learning. They're not the ones leaving everyone else in the room dumbfounded at their knowledge and their insight and their perspective on the word of God. And then it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, as Christians, I think we have this sense of Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. But it takes some time to really work that through. What does that mean? And how can Jesus grow in wisdom and stature and in knowledge? You know, in the first century, there were a number of, first and second century, there were a number of false documents floating around the early church that were false gospel accounts. And the reason they were false is because they were either not written during the time period of Jesus, they were not written by eyewitnesses, or they were just completely fabricated stories. Some of those have ridiculous stories about Jesus' childhood. So, for example, one of the false gospel accounts has young Jesus, when he's just a little boy, being bored and then fat, taking mud and fashioning a little animal out of it and then breathing into it and turning it into a living animal, and I think it's a bird, and the bird flies away. Now, many of us actually have in our brain a picture of Jesus that's something like that. He was this kind of Superman boy. He could do anything he wanted to do because he was fully God. If, if he really wanted to fly, he could have flied. He, he could have flown. He, he could do anything. And you can see how those fal false gospel accounts would have been created in the first century, trying to understand who was he. But verse 52 throws a wrench in that. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus' divinity is an astounding part of what it meant for Jesus to be Jesus. And the most important thing that Jesus' divinity did is it gave him the power to defeat death when he was crucified. He rose from the grave again because he was fully God. But on a day-to-day -day basis, Jesus lived a fully human life. He fatigued. He tired. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He, he had, he had a, a will to desire things. He, he lived this life of growing up and he had to go through those awkward teenage puberty years. You know, this is a funny thing to think of, of Jesus, right? But, but he grew up like every other human being grows up and he had to learn. He had to study the Bible. He had to memorize words that, just like we have to memorize texts and, and he had to memorize them and he probably stumbled his way through and was learning them and working them. Again, neverly, never morally making a mistake, Ever, not once, even in mind or thought or in heart, but having to grow and increase in knowledge. Over the years of his life, as he was studying under rabbis, he was consuming the word of God and realizing exactly what his identity was and what his mission was. He was perfect, yet without sin. Now, what are the practical uses of this doctrine? I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture of the humanity of Jesus. He was fully human. Now again, over the years, theologians have wrestled with how can this be? What does it look like? And there, admittedly, there's a bit of a mystery behind all of this. How can he be both? But today I want to focus on his humanity. What does that bring to us that's important? 
Well, I like the way the New City Catechism, this is a catechism we train our children with in, in the, at this church. It answers this question. It says, why must the Redeemer be, tr- be truly human? And it answers it this way. That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. Let's walk through those. Th- those. He might perfectly obey the whole law. God, looking down on man in all of his corruption, seeing that every single human ever born had fallen from his design, had broken the law, and would never truly fulfill the law, knew the consequences of that were death. Now, God had established a covenant with them that if a human fully obeyed the law, life would come to them, but no human ever could do that. And so God himself stepped into the story, taking on true humanity, not just painting it on, not, not acting as if he was just a human, but actually becoming a human like you in order to fulfill the law, doing what you could never do. And then secondly, that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses. This is remarkable language. The book of Hebrews picks up on this a lot. Jesus, being fully human, knew what it was like to be physically weak. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we're gonna find Jesus weak at many points. We're gonna find him weeping, bawling, over certain situations. That's interesting language for God, fully God, yet fully man, stepping into brokenness. And the shortest sentence in the New Testament is Jesus wept. When did that happen? When his good friend Lazarus died. He knew what it was like to lose a loved one. He knew what it was like to step into hardship. He knew what it was like to be beaten. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He, he knew what it was like to be to have people confused over who you were and, and misrepresent you before other people. All the things that we go through in this life, he knew and knows what it's like because he became human himself. Now, what ought that do in you as a Christian? If you get that, that should develop inside of you this sense of awe that God, who is so infinitely perfect beyond our wildest and just eternal perspective, way bigger than anything we can imagine, that that God would step into the finite reality of human life in order to pursue you, that should leave a Christian with this overwhelming sense of, what is this Christianity? Who is this God? That he would step into human, the weakness of human flesh, that he would take on the form of a servant to come after me, despite all of my corruption, a true wrestling with this doctrine should leave a Christian just stunned in awe regularly. Secondly, it should leave you with an overwhelming sense of gratefulness for what Christ has accomplished. If you look at the law of God and you know that you cannot fulfill it on your own, you know what, you, if you truly know what your destiny would be if you were left on your own and you've looked into the moral law of God and you've seen into your own heart and you know I have fallen short, I've thought wrong, I've felt wrong, I've acted wrong, and then you look that, that God would take on flesh and fulfill the law for you. He would do what you couldn't do and the cost of it was his death. It should leave you with a sense of gratefulness to God. The doctrine of the humanity of Jesus Christ must leave Christians just stunned, saying, God, it's too wonderful for me to understand fully, but I'm grateful that you did this, and I want to live my life humbly following after you as a result. The humanity of Christ. All of that we get from this text here. Now, secondly, the second thing we see, we we see a little bit of Christ's nature in this text. 
But we also see something about Christ's purpose in this text. And this one, I hope, really kind of gives us a good punch in the gut, if a pastor can say that. Jesus was about his father's business. What what was his life about? What was he aiming to do over the course of his life? What what was Jesus' ministry all about? Well, in terms of his purpose, he was about his father's business. He's sitting at the feet of the, of the rabbis. He's sitting at the, at the feet of all the, the leaders of the day, and they're stunned at him. His mom comes into the room and says, Did, didn't you know we were looking for you? Where were you? And then he says to her, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now that translation, your Bible probably has a footnote underneath it. That's an interesting translation. And uh, if you have a, a different, maybe if you have like the NIV with you today or something like that, you might see that another way to translate that, that is often the case, is did you not know that I would be about my father's business? In fact, a very literal way, would, would, like the actual words in the Greek would be something like this. Did you not know that I'd be, about the, I'd be doing the things of my father? Something like that. Now, I don't know why they chose in my father's house. It's, that, that's frankly a little too loose of a translation. Did you not know I'd be about my father's business? In that sense, what's he communicating? Well, he's saying, Mom, didn't you just assume that if there was a chance to study the word of God, that I'd be there? Didn't you assume, Mom, that if all the the youth from the area who were going to be trained to be in ministry were gathering and they were sitting under the likes of the greatest men of that day, didn't you didn't just, ass- that, that's what's natural for me. That, that's, that's where I'd be. I think John from our small group said that this week. That's, that's what's natural for me to be here. Mom, did you get it wrong, who I, who I am and what I'm aiming to do with my life? Now, the pursuit of God and the desire for God to be the central driving thread of our life is true not only of Jesus, but that's true of every single follower of Christ. We are not Jesus. We are not God and man. We don't have the same mission as Jesus, but But once you become a follower of Christ, you too, at all parts of your life, can answer the question the same way he did. Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? That's the posture of a Christian. That's the angle of our life. That's what we're chasing after. And look at this. He went down with them, verse 51, came to Nazareth and was submissive to his mom and dad. And and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, what did it mean for Jesus to be about his father's business? Was he more about his father's business when he was at the feet of the religious leaders studying the Torah than he was when he was on his way home with his mom and dad? No. No. Was he more about his father's business when he was at the feet of the religious leaders studying the Torah than he was when he became a carpenter and took after his father's trade? Day in, day out, carving wood, making tables, and whatever else it is carpenters made in those days? No, Jesus was always about his father's business. In that moment, what it meant for him to be about his father's business was to be there in that space. But in this moment, what it meant for him to be about his father's business was to be making a table and to be doing that job faithfully. It's interesting. This is the last time we see Joseph. Who's Joseph? Joseph was the guy who adopted Jesus, essentially. Right? Because Mary was the biological mother, but, but Jesus didn't have a biological father in the sense that you and I do. It was an, he was immaculately conceived. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. And so Joseph was the adopted dad of Jesus. We don't see Joseph again after this story, which has led most theologians to believe that Joseph died shortly after this. We know that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and in that day and age, when a family 
the husband dies, the oldest son becomes a de facto dad in the family. He takes care of all the siblings. He makes sure that they're provided for. Hence, he became a carpenter. So, so Jesus takes on flesh. He's without a father, as best as we can tell shortly after this scene. His adopted dad that he, that he must have loved. He takes the role of a carpenter, steps in with his mom and making sure that she has what he needs. Is he about his father's business when he's doing all that? You better believe it. He's doing it with a single-minded focus on, on, on chasing hard after Jesus. Now, as followers of Jesus, we all have a story where we came from. Jesus' story was unique to him, but your story is unique to you. And we gotta look at the things God's given us and he's assigned us and the story that we have. You know, Jesus' dad died and okay, like now I gotta, now how do I be about my father's business? And, and for some of you, you've been through all these circumstances. Maybe you're going through circumstances and the question you should be asking yourself from this text is, what does it mean for me to be about my father's business? In all things. Let me pull from this text a handful of ways that I think we can see with clarity how Jesus was about his father's business that I think can apply to us as well. Maybe a bit of a litmus test for you to see if this is true of you. Number one, Jesus made God the chief vision and course of his life. This is how he was about his father's business. He made God the chief vision and course for his life. Of course he was gonna be with the rabbis. Mom, you brought me to Jerusalem to the Passover. There's a moment for me to study with them. I'm going to be here. Why? It's the chief vision of my life. I want to chase hard after God. I think of it a little bit like a mariner who's traveling across the ocean. And he, you know, you've, you've got this set of tools to direct you where you're supposed to go. And, and for Jesus, the compass was set towards knowing and, and, and loving God. Knowing and loving the Father. That's where I'm going. And wherever I find myself, even if I come into a storm, it's like, okay, the compass is going this way. And I got to keep going back that way. A person whose chief ambition is the pursuit of God has the pursuit of God as their final destination. That frames everything. Jesus would teach in Matthew, a very famous verse. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And, and Christians today, if we're gonna say, okay, are we living for, about being for our father's business, about our father's business? We should have one master the problem is, is that in reality, the world throws a lot of different stuff at us. All day, every day, we're tempted to make, you know, we might say it with our mind, yes, one master, but our actions might be showing, you know what, there's some rivals up there. The pursuit of power, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of comfort, these are all huge idols that stand in the way of saying, I got one master, I'll do what he says. Remember the rich young ruler Jesus says, here's what it looks like for you to show me that you have one master. Give everything away and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. And many of us, to be honest with you, money stands right up there. That's why Jesus said this. It stands right up there. Is he, is, is he really the number one? Over and over, what I found is that I find in my own life, when I drift, there, God will oftentimes, if I go through some kind of a storm and my compass gets off, God will oftentimes do something in me, shake me a little bit, to make me cling to Jesus and remind myself this is where the compass is supposed to be pointed. Maybe he's doing that in your life. Number two, Jesus' religion was not just in the externals of religion. It was always about the heart. 
What's he say? Did, did you not know I would be about my father's business? That language, my father. He's talking about God in a very personal way. It wasn't just about the externals of it. In fact, that's what Jesus got mad at the Pharisees for. When he, became, when he entered into the age to be an official rabbi himself at the age of 30, the, the thing he kept getting against the rabbis and the leaders of his day was, you've made this just about the externals. Be here, say these prayers, do these things. You don't know God as Father. See, someone who's made God the, the chief end of their life, it's not just about what you do with your time. It's not just about what you do with your money. Those are external things that are important, but that must flow out of the Lord's prayer. My Father, who art in heaven. You, you've, you've learned to love God, not just for the religion of it, but because he is your Father. He loves you, and you, 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 you are just getting that nutrients from him every day for your soul. It wasn't just about the externals. American Christianity is about the externals, right? That, that's what it is. It, it, sometimes American Christianity can just become a big circus. And, and why does it become a big circus? Because I think what a lot of people really want out of Christianity is they want externals. They want to feel like they've done something with religion. I want to check the religion box. Okay, I did my Sunday religion box, good. Now I can get on with my day. No, no, no. You don't find that in the life of Jesus. One, one writer, uh, Thomas Watson, he wrote this. He said, a Christian's main work lies with the heart. He that makes religion his business gives God the vitals. He worships him in spirit and in truth. And then this is an interesting line. If you can follow this, this is good. He's remembering the high priests, their offering they had to make, the instructions that were made to the priests in the Old Testament. Aaron was the high priest. He says, Aaron must offer the fat upon the altar. He shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covers the inwards. All the fat is the Lord, said the word of God. He says, if Aaron had offered the skin instead of the fat, it would not have been accepted. External devotion, says Thomas Watson alone, is offering the skin. And they that give God only the skin of duty shall carry away only the shell of comfort. You want, you want what Christianity is supposed to be? You, you, you give your life your heart, and you won't know God at the heart level. It's not just the externals. Number three, Jesus delighted in following God's law. He was about his father's business. He delighted in the law. How do we know this? Well, 12 years old, what did he do after this scene? The text very clearly says he went down with his mom and dad, and he was submissive to them. Why did he do that? Well, because that's what the law of God said youth needed to do. They need to be submissive to their parents. Secondly, when he was talking to the, the Pharisees at 12 years old, was he doing what he did at 30 years old to them? No, that would have been inappropriate. At 12 years old, he was learning from them. He was, he was being respectful of them. And he was giving good judgments as well. They were astounded at the questions he was asking, at the way he was responding to them. But he, he was not saying, you know, what he would end up saying to them, you whitewashed tombs. That was at 31, 32 years old when it was appropriate for that. That would have been sin at that point at 12 years old to be doing that, as far as I can tell. Jesus loved the word of God. He loved the law of God. Psalm 119 would have been on his lips. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So Christian, you want to be about your father's business at all times? Do you love the law of God? Do you think on it? Do you, do you measure your life? Am I in alignment? And if there's something out of alignment... How do, I, how do I make sure that that's what I'm about, to bring this back in alignment so my heart and life line up with what I say is true of me? Jesus was about his father's business. Fourth thing I see from this text, Christ's conscience was determined by God alone. This is important. 
His conscience was determined by God alone. Mary comes frantically looking in the room for him. She's frantic. She's a mother. I would have been frantic as a dad. I've been running all over Jerusalem, out of breath, looking for my son. I'd finally found him, runs in the room. Where are you? (laughs) But his response to her, it's so compassionate, but also just clear. Didn't you know I'd be doing my father's business? He was not swayed, even, and however this worked out, he was respectful to Mary, he was submissive to Mary, he probably knew that Mary was worried at some point if she hadn't seen him for a couple days, but, but he wasn't swayed by her. He was very confident, this is what I'm doing, and this is where I need to be, Mom. To be a Christian today carries with it a very difficult place to have a single conscience for God. To declare that you stand on the word of God and that you will not bend no matter what the the, the pressure on you is, is is very unpopular. You won't win a lot of points in culture when you make that statement about yourself. The Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, Galatians chapter one, verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. I've had to use that verse many times. Because what happens to us in our Christian walk is we want to be out of our father's business, but then we get out into the secular world around us and we suddenly realize that we're not going to get a lot of, you know, check marks on people's lists when we're about our father's business. And so the temptation is just temper it back a little bit. Okay, you want me to sign what paper about what I believe about gender and sexuality, boss? Okay, I'll just sign it and get through the moment. These are the questions I've had with many of you. I know, you, I know those are actual papers your bosses make you sign. You want me to, okay, you want me to go be a part of this, and what is that communicating? Okay, maybe, maybe it's not so bad. I'll step on. These are hard. I'm not saying these are easy decisions to make. But what happens is, when you step out of the church into the real world, the pressure to conform to something other than the standard of God is so heavy, and I find myself at times just kind of, like, I don't, I don't know if I should ruffle people's feathers like that out. out. It's hard. Jesus had a single-minded conscience. I'm about my father's business. And he lost a lot of people along the way. Oftentimes, you'll see in the Gospel of Luke, he's getting a following, getting a following, and then it says, and basically everyone deserted him after that. Just a few stuck around. Such is the cost of making your life about the father's business. Now, if you're like me and you're going through these four, my guess is that at some degree with those four ways Jesus demonstrates this today, you fall short. This morning I was, <laughs> I was just going over this sermon and then I, I spent some time in prayer this morning and I was asking God just to kind of work through the message and, and as I was praying, I'm on my knees praying for you. So this is just real pastor talk with you right now. I'm on my knees praying for you, praying that God would move in this service and the next thing I know, I'm coming out of what must have been three, four minutes thinking about Mission Impossible movies. Okay, now why is that? Why? why? Why, I'm on my knees, I'm trying to pray, but in my weakness, Tom Cruise is flying off a motorcycle and he's landing on bad guys. Now I say it humorously, but that's actually a problem. I, I, have, I have an easily distractible brain and very often when I go to pray, I find my thoughts all over the place. Do you, can you relate to that, am I alone? Thank you. Now, what do we do in our weakness? 
in our human weakness, where, where can we turn when we find that we're just too weak? Ah, the God who took on flesh and knew what human fatigue felt like. The God who took on flesh and lived among us because of our weakness, that we could never live up to the law perfectly. That's where we turn. The God who was the God-man, who, who lived the perfect life, who even though he fatigued with, and got tired and he sweat and he bled and he cried, his mind never grew weary for doing his father's business. And so in all my weakness, I look to my Savior on the cross and I say, thank you, Jesus. I do not live up. I fall short, my prayers fall short, my life falls short, I conform sometimes, and I don't want to, but there's one who didn't, and he was on the cross on my behalf, dying a death that I deserved, and so I look to him, and my faith is in Christ, because he satisfied the law when I could never have done it, and then Jesus extends his mercy and grace to you. What was that song we just sang? He will hold me fast. Despite my weaknesses and pronenesses to just wander off in different directions, he'll hold me fast. The God who took on flesh in order to hold you fast. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus took on flesh and can identify with all of the weaknesses, and yet he never faltered in the midst of it. We cling to him. He holds you fast. He'll see you through to the end. If your faith is in Jesus, the God... God the Father has adopted you into his family in a similar way that Joseph adopted Jesus into his family. And he will never let you go. He will hold you fast to the end, no matter how weak you find yourself to be. He's the strength that will see you through to the end. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a sweet way to kick off the Gospel of Luke, reminding ourselves of the humanity of Christ. Lord, I pray in this room right now that there would be an overwhelming sense of the awesome reality that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. I pray that we would not leave here as if that's just any other thought, any other day. God, may we be overwhelmed by it. May it capture our minds and our hearts. May we find ourselves reflecting on that later today. Just overwhelmed at God's mercy towards us. And God, I pray that we will be a people about our Father's business, wherever we find ourselves, whatever we do, wherever we are, whoever we're talking with, whatever office we're in or classroom we're in, that we would have one overwhelming, passionate pursuit of our life, to be about our Father's business, and that we would grow in that over time, that our weaknesses would fade away like dross as you put us through the fire, and that we'd increasingly find ourselves more and more able to be about our Father's business. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.